I do not eat food, but enjoy a light meal every day. What am I? A plant. <laughs> oh, she's got gardening jokes. Yes, she does. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Starting Sustainability. This is episode 121, and I'm your host, Kaylin Chenoweth. It's been so long since I talked to you last. Let's catch up. So yes, the garden is in the ground. Last I left off, I was looking for dirt because the bagged dirt was really expensive and came in a whole bunch of plastic. I ended up driving down to Green Cycle, which is a mulch and soil yard down in Indianapolis. It's actually the same place that I would take my composting all last summer, or my compost <laughs> all last summer. Anyways, they're 45 minutes away, and I got there last Saturday morning, and they informed me that they were sold out. Sold out! of dirt, sold out of freaking garden soil. So the lesson that I learned that I'm gonna pass on to you is to call ahead and save yourself an hour and a half round trip drive, wasting a whole bunch of very expensive gas to not get any freaking soil. I was very frustrated with myself. That's all I could be mad at for not calling ahead. But then I took the time right then and there in the parking lot to call every other mulch yard in the Lafayette area. And there were three that actually hired garden soil, but they were twice the price. You'd <laughs> be really mad. I started to go into panic mode because this is where I messed up last year and I learned my lesson and I am actively making the same mistake right now <laughs> that I'm taking too long to get the garden set up and then by the time I go to buy plants they're going to be so picked over I'm not going to get anything. Last year I basically got three tomato plants, a bell pepper plant and a whole lot of lettuce because that's all that was left. This year I am determined to get a garden in in time before all the plants are picked over. At this point, I had to weigh out my options, the ones that were left. I didn't like any of them, but I had to pick from my terrible options. And I bit the bullet and went to the mulch and soil yard that was in Lafayette and got overpriced garden soil. They told me it was a mix of dirt, compost, and peat moss. Excellent for gardening. Great. Sounds good to me. On my 45-minute drive back up to Lafayette, I stopped in the town of Frankfurt, Indiana, and found a very small backyard nursery that's basically out in the middle of the country. It was a lady. probably I think she's retired. She looked older. And this must have been her hobby or her source of income during retirement. And it was basically a, a house in the country that had three gigantic greenhouses in her backyard. But her plants were $2.50 each or $33 for a flat of 18, which was quite a deal compared to all the other places that I was looking at for plants. And I'll name them Lowe's, Home Depot, Tractor Supply. They are all like five to $8 each for their plants, which is ridiculous. So definitely worth it to support local made me feel good about supporting local and I saved a ton of money at the same time too. That made me feel better about having to pay overpriced money for garden soil. After I picked up the garden soil, came home, we unloaded it into the garden beds and I realized how poor quality it was. It had not been screened. I didn't really know that that was a thing or to even ask about it. But as we're digging through the dirt, unloading it from the back of the pickup truck. I got one and a half cubic yards, which is a lot of dirt. So we're sitting there shoveling out of the back of the pickup truck, putting it into the garden beds. We are literally pulling out 
flattened plastic water bottles, weeds, rocks, plastic spoons, large sticks. I'm, (laughs) I was so mad. But what, what am I going to do at that point? Shovel it all back into the truck and return it? We're just choosing to deal with it and hoping for the best at this point. I did get the plants in the garden and planted. The plants that I could find, the ones that I couldn't find, I went and got seed packets and we got the seeds in the garden. And two days later, I'm watering and I noticed, man, there's a lot of ants in this dirt. Now, I don't know if the dirt came with the ants or if the ants made their way into the dirt. I'm not really sure, but it is a raised garden bed. So I'm I'm guessing <laughs> as much disdain as I have towards this pile of dirt, <laughs> I'm going to blame it on the mold chard for giving me ant-filled dirt. Now I have a bunch of ants in my garden to take care of. I'm currently saving all of the coffee grounds from my husband's coffee that he makes every single morning and every day I'm running out there adding coffee grounds to the soil. One, it's good. It makes it slightly acidic, which is great for tomato plants. And two, ants don't like coffee grounds. So it's a win-win for me at this point. Where else did we leave off last week? Oh yeah, the mower was completely stuck in the swamp. It took four days of 90 degree heat for the swamp to dry up enough for us to get the mower unstuck, but we did it and it was quite a celebration. And at this point, we have now gotten two more quotes for geothermal. So we have all three quotes that we were able to get, literally all three companies that service this area. We have them. And it takes some time to get the quotes. I just want to share that for anybody else that's thinking about going geothermal. Each time a person has to come and look at your property and walk around and look at the layout of your house in order to accurately quote the job. And this is because it will be quite a big ordeal to install geothermal. It's going to be a construction zone. They got to dig trenches. They got to haul out old equipment, put in new equipment, make sure it's going to fit. If they need to redo duct work, they might have to do that. So it's, it's quite a bit. Anyways, now my husband and I just need to arrange a time to sit down, just the two of us, without the two little kids needing a hundred different things and interrupting us a hundred times to look at all three quotes and really get a good understanding of what we want and what we're able to afford and what we're able to accomplish for our future plans. It is currently garage sale season, which I am super excited about. This past weekend, the local small town had a town-wide garage sale and I was super excited to go out and find all the things that we're still looking for for the house for the kids needs anything and unfortunately we had really wicked winds super windy and on and off again rain the entire weekend so the town garage sale was quite a bust (laughs) but I know there will be more garage sales coming up If you've never been garage sale hunting or shopping, I highly recommend it, especially when there's a town-wide sale because then you can just hit a whole bunch all at once. And you can usually, if you're able to find what you're looking for, you can usually work a deal because let's be honest, these people are literally just trying to get rid of their junk. They just put prices on it to try to make a little bit of money. But for the most part, they really just want to get rid of it. And you can usually finagle a little deal in there, which is just part of the thrill of the hunt anyways. And currently, we are gearing up for my sister's 40th birthday celebration up in the Wisconsin Dells. We did a big trip two years ago that I told you about, and that was for a different sister. I'm actually the youngest of eight kids. I believe I've mentioned this before, but for those of you who don't remember or are new, I'm the youngest of eight kids. (laughs) And when the oldest, that's my sister, Tammy, 
When she turned 50, we all did a big trip to celebrate her birthday along with my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. If you can do the math, you'll understand why they are married so young. <laughs> yes, my parents started with an oops. They later named her Tammy, and that's why they got married. <laughs> and then they just kept on having babies until my mom was told by her doctor that she could no longer have babies, and she was in her mid-40s, so she quit birth control because her doctor said she didn't need it anymore. And then I came along. So they started with an oops and ended with a, oh, we can still do that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure she switched doctors after that. But anyways, we all had so much fun at Tammy's 50th celebration that we decided to keep it going, keep doing these big celebrations each time one of us siblings turned 50. And we have done that for everyone, working our way down the line, and now my sister Rayelle is turning 40. Since there were six kids and then a big time gap of about 12 years before Rayel and then another four years myself came along, we opted for Rayel and I to celebrate our 40th because if we wait till we're 50, our siblings are all going to be in their mid to upper 70s. And we actually wanted to do really fun things that our bodies were capable of doing. And that's why we're going to those Consendels in two weeks for Rayel's 40th birthday celebration. For this celebration, there is a required list of clothing items that we must bring because we have themed gatherings, and I'm starting to run low on time <laughs> to find all of these things. I don't know if you remember, but at the beginning of the year, I gave myself a bucket list challenge to only buy five brand new to me clothing items for myself and for my kids. My husband Channing is off the hook. He gets to do his own thing, but I wanted to do that for myself and my kids. That's the challenge that I gave myself. The problem is that I've also embraced minimalism and I got rid of a lot of things that I now wish I had. At this point, I have two weeks to find special superhero outfits and 80s neon themed outfits and I'm trying to find them all secondhand or by utilizing what we already have and either cutting it up or decorating it, somehow making it into whatever it is that we need, superhero outfits and whatnot. I've been all over Facebook Marketplace trying to find pre-loved capes and masks and everybody's so helpful to send me links on Amazon to buy it all brand new. I'm like, yes, I'm aware I can go buy these on Amazon. I think everybody on earth is aware that Amazon exists at this point. I literally don't want to go to Amazon. I'm trying to do other things, not Amazon. And the town wide garage sale was a flop. I'm having zero luck at Goodwill and nobody on Facebook is able to help me. So it's been quite a challenge that I gave myself and this is what I asked for and I'm doing it. I think what I will do now, my next option is to find a secondhand shop in a different town and go hunt there. That is at least my next step. If that doesn't work out, I will come up with something else at that point. And something else, a small victory, not sustainably related, but I just wanted to share because it is a victory in my world, that my husband and I did manage to squeeze in an at-home date night. That was the first time in about six weeks <laughs> since we jumped on board this crazy train of moving. And we opted to watch Top Gun on Netflix because the remake is coming out Memorial Day weekend. And I can't tell you why, but I am super excited for the remake. I'm not even that obsessed with Top Gun. I've literally seen it once a long, long time ago, so long ago that I forgot really what it was about. So it was actually really nice to watch it again and get the refresh. But now both my husband and I are very excited and invested to go watch the Top Gun remake. My husband and I have to schedule in TV time because we are both so busy, but one of the shows we do like to watch is Homestead Rescue. And one day during nap time, 
a long time ago, we were able to watch an episode. This was season four, episode one of Homestead Rescue, and it was titled Poison, Toxic Land Plagues a Kentucky Homestead. Now, this homestead is located in the Daniel Boone Forest in Kentucky. And for those of you who have not seen the show, Marty Rainey is the lead guy, and it's his grown son and daughter, Matt and Misty. They go to failing homesteads and rescue them. As you might have inferred from the title of the show, Homestead Rescue. (laughs) Each episode is a different homestead in different locations with varying challenges. In this episode, the Homestead family purchased the land knowing it was bad, hoping to fix it with compost and fertilizers, and they were unsuccessful. The land was contaminated from coal mines. The mining process depleted the ground of minerals and poisoned the ground with heavy metals like lead and arsenic and stuff. The ground will never be able to grow plants of any kind ever again. Also a challenge was the contaminated groundwater, again from the mining process. So the Homestead family had to get on a four-wheeler every day and drive miles to safe water pump and physically pump it to get water for them to drink, wash, cook, and care for the animals with. The good news is the Rainies did soil samples all over the Homestead property and they did find one small area on top of a hill where the Homestead family could actually garden and be able to support themselves with fruits and vegetables. And they also brought in a driller who was able to find uncontaminated water deep underground. They actually had to go through a couple of contaminated sources to get deep, deep underground to find one that wasn't contaminated. So they were able to rescue the homestead. Yay! Watching this episode made me curious about coal mining and its environmental effects. So I started looking into it and here's what I found. This is a newspaper article from WilliamsonDailyNews.com. Now, this talks about the Buffalo Creek flood disaster. This happened in February 26, 1972. So I will tell you the story of the Buffalo Creek disaster. At 8 a.m. back in February 1972, a dam in a coal mining community of Buffalo Creek, West Virginia, was owned by Piston Coal Company It burst, releasing 132 million gallons of black coal waste water refuge and silt into the community. The dam was holding the coal waste impoundment, which is basically where they stored the coal mine's waste. It wasn't a dam constructed for electrical use or anything. The purpose of the dam was to hold nasty, disgusting water. That's the purpose of the dam. And when the dam failed, black waves of water that were over 30 feet high rampaged over 17 miles, destroying everything in its path. Now, this was in a mountain town and the dam was up the mountain and it broke. And so the flood is traveling down through the valley and that valley was called Buffalo Creek. It turns out that it rained for three days prior to the flood. The water level in the dam rose one to two inches per hour. And there was actually a series of three coal wastewater dams up the mountain that all backed each other up. So dam number three was at the top of the mountain and it was the first to fail. And the water from dam number three then came crashing down and overpowered the already very full dam number two, causing it to fail. And then all of that wastewater from both of those dams flooded the already super full dam number one and caused it to collapse. Here's what's really eye-opening. 
the day before the rain started, so four days before the dam failures, the dams were declared satisfactory by a federal mine inspector. I wonder if he got to keep his job. I don't know. That's just my own personal thoughts. When the dams broke, the first town it hit was basically obliterated, and that was the town of Saunders. And then it successively went through a whole bunch of other small towns, including Party, Laredo, Lawndale, and basically a dozen other small villages all in that narrow creek valley. In the end, 125 people lost their lives. Another 1,121 were injured and more than 4,000 of the 5,000 residents, so we're at 80% here, of Buffalo Creek were left homeless. Some residents ran for the hills and escaped in time. Others clung to trees, limbs, or logs to escape the raging waters. Homes were carried away or ripped apart on contact with families inside. Remember, all this is at 8 a.m. <laughs> People were still waking up and getting ready to start their day. There's even a sad story of one mother who could not outrun the waters, so she threw her infant son to the hillside. She did not survive, but her son lived and was deemed the miracle baby of Buffalo Creek. Eventually, it took a long time, but eventually, Pitson Coal Company settled with lawsuits and each survivor received $13,000. I definitely do not think that's nearly enough, but that's what they got. Because of this event, new laws regarding dam construction and maintenance were created to prevent further tragedy. Do you think those laws worked? <laughs> Let's find out. Part two. <laughs> so this next part comes from a website called pophistorydig.com. And they explain that the problem with coal waste impoundments all across America has not gone away since 1972. That's in reference to Buffalo Creek disaster. So all this time later, today, there are still hundreds of coal waste dams to worry about, as well as other assorted coal waste dangers throughout the U.S. In fact, there's a very sizable coal waste legacy that will continue to pose dangers for many rural American communities. Yeah, they don't do this stuff in the city. People there would fight it. <laughs> so they do small towns where you don't have a population strong enough to fight it off. Not only does it affect the rural American communities, it's going to affect the rivers and the streams that feed a lot. <laughs> Most of our nation survives off of rivers and streams for their water sources. And this issue is going to be for decades to come, even as the coal industry as a whole winds down in the U.S. Well, with the rise of gas prices, some people are actually pushing for return to coal, which I say, no, <laughs> no, no, no. You know, when you watch in the movie and it goes into slow motion, no, please don't do that. We do not need to bring back coal mines. No, 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 no. In addition to coal waste dams used in mining and coal washing operations, there are also more than 1,400 coal ash impoundments used mostly at or near coal-fired power plants in the U.S. In addition, coal wastes have also been dumped into abandoned deep mines and used to reclaim strip mines. Still, other operations use injection techniques to pump various coal wastes underground. Recent history suggests that a number of these facilities and practices hold public safety risks and or environmental threats. In the year 2000, increased attention was focused on the regulation of coal waste impoundments following a failure near Inez, Kentucky. In that case, 
the bottom of the 72-acre Big Branch Slurry Impoundment owned by the Martin County Coal Corporation, it broke through an abandoned underground mine located below it. That failure sent 300 million gallons of liquid coal waste tearing through the underground mine chambers, then spewing out of the mountainside portals into valleys and streams below. So the Buffalo Creek disaster was 132 million gallons, and this one was nearly 300 million gallons, more than double, more accurately two and a half times. That's insane. The toxic coal slurry poured into Kentucky's cold water and Wolf Creeks, then to the Tug Fork of the Big Sandy River, traveling more than 70 miles downstream and eventually reaching the Ohio River with black water visible at Cincinnati. Drinking water systems in 10 counties had to be shut down, and a 20-mile stretch of the river was declared an aquatic dead zone. More than 1,500 fish were killed. At the time, the EPA called it the worst environmental disaster in the southeast United States. In the wake of this disaster, Congress asked the National Research Council to examine ways to reduce the potential for similar accidents in the future, and their report appeared in October 2001, recommending the federal government establish clear authority to review the stability of such impoundments, improve regulation, establish minimum distance rules, and undertake more complete mapping of existing and abandoned underground mines. So if you didn't catch it, the government said, hey, National Research Council, please investigate this and publish a report. And the Research Council said, yes, here's a report. We think that the government should establish clear authority, improve regulation, establish rules, and do more mapping. <laughs> so they just put it on each other. But nothing was actually done. We just published a report. In December 2008... So eight years after the Inez, Kentucky event, seven years after the report came out, a second major impoundment breached, this time a failure of a giant 84-acre coal ash impoundment at the Tennessee Valley Authority, Kingston Fossil Plant in eastern Tennessee. The Inez, Kentucky disaster was a 72-acre impoundment, and this time it is now an 84-acre coal ash impoundment, so even bigger. So the Tennessee Valley Dam failure released 1.1 billion gallons of coal ash slurry. 1.1 billion. 1.1 billion. Oh my gosh. Buffalo Creek was 132 million. Inez was 300 million. And now we're triple that at 1.1 billion. Great. They just keep getting worse. This time, the waste contaminated the Emory and Clinch rivers, more than a dozen homes and hundreds of acres of the downstream communities of Harrison, Tennessee, were hit with a gigantic, toxic mess. The spill covered the surrounding land with up to six feet of sludge. The EPA had initially estimated the spill would take four to six weeks to clean up. And three years later, they were still cleaning it up. Not to mention the damage is still going strong at this point. Thanks, EPA. Tennessee Valley Authority's spill was from a coal ash impoundment, which is somewhat different than the mine site slurry impoundment, as it deals with post-combustion power plant coal ash, which involves a different regulatory arena than the mine site or coal processing impoundments. Still, the worries for citizens living near either kind of impoundment are equally valid, whether it's the mine site or the power plant variety. According to the U.S. EPA, 
There are over 1,000 operating coal, ash, waste, ponds, and landfills, plus many hundreds of retired coal ash disposal sites. Some 208 of these, which is one-fifth of them, coal combustion waste sites are known to have contaminated groundwater, wetlands, and or rivers. A number of leaks and smaller spills have also occurred. The EPA has made hazard ratings for hundreds of the coal combustion waste ponds and impoundments in the U.S., ranking them for the public safety dangers and environmental risks they would pose in the event of a failure. As of December 2014, some 331 of these facilities were rated as either holding a high or significant safety hazard, meaning likely loss of life in the former case and significant economic environmental damage in the latter case. The Earth Justice Organization, one of the environmental groups following this issue, has compiled a U.S. map of these sites. Unfortunately, you can't see that map. (laughs) It's at the website, so you can look it up. I'm looking at the map right now, and I'll do my best to describe it. Basically, every single state, with the exception of California, Washington, Idaho, Utah, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. Seven states. So every single other state has either coal combustion waste ponds and or impoundments in them. So I highly recommend that you take a look to see if there's one in your state because it may not be near you, but once it gets into the water, that water will travel. Water travels far and we need that water. And it's a good thing to look at the map to see if there's something that you need to be concerned about. So you can go to earthjustice.org backslash coal ash backslash map. That's the website to go to earthjustice.org backslash coal ash backslash map. And you can take a look there and see what your risk level is. So far, we've only discussed the coal waste issues. There are so many more environmental impacts from coal. I will briefly touch on them now. This next bit of information is coming from WWF, World Wildlife Foundation. They say coal is the most abundant and least expensive of the fossil fuels. It is also the most popular, accounting for almost 40% of the total worldwide power generation. There are significant environmental impacts associated with coal mining and use. It could require the removal of massive amounts of topsoil, leading to erosion, loss of habitat, and pollution. Coal mining causes acid mine drainage, which causes heavy metals to dissolve and seep into the ground and surface water. That's what happened with the Homestead Rescue up in the Daniel Boone Forest in Kentucky. Coal mine workers also sometimes face serious health problems, including lung disease from prolonged exposure to coal dust in mines. When I read this, it made me think of this word, Newman Ultramicroscopic Silicovolcano Coniosis. (laughs) I can thank my friend Kayla Orr. In the fifth grade, she taught me that word. (laughs) Why is that word important? Because it's the longest word in the English language and it is 45 letters long. So that's your fun trivia fact in case you ever get on Jeopardy or whatever. Newman Ultramicroscopic Silicovolcanoconiosis is the longest word in the English language. It is a disease that coal miners get from breathing in fine silica dust. It's also known as black lung. There are other environmental impacts associated with using coal as an energy source, and they are particulate emission, 
ground level ozone, smog, and acid rain. Coal and fuel oil combustion emit fly ash particles into the atmosphere, which contribute to air pollution problems. Upon burning, coal produces a number of gaseous byproducts, including carbon dioxide, nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide, and methane gas, all of which contribute to global climate change. The entire process of mining and burning coal is terrible for the environment. But like I said earlier, it is the cheapest and most abundant, which is why it is so heavily used. I would like to point out that it is very important if you are trying to be as sustainable as possible and save the earth to at least take a moment to take a look at your local energy provider and figure out how they get their energy. Do they get it from nuclear power sources? Do they get it from wind energy? Do they get it from coal energy? And look into it and find out. If they're getting it from coal, then there are other ways to get energy. I'm not saying you have to go solar panels. You can. It's very expensive, (laughs) which is why I haven't done it yet. But take a look into your local energy provider and see what they do. And if they are coal, maybe there are other energy providers in your area that you can switch to. Hopefully you can. There are other ways that you can get energy for your house. It's just something to at least look into and be aware of. I understand that this episode was a bit of a downer. (laughs) Very disheartening to read and hear about all of the effects of the coal mining industry and really sad to learn that we are still heavily using coal This many years later, coal's been around for a long time. There are resources that cited coal being traced back to around AD 50 from cinders and Roman ruins. There's also evidence to suggest that the Greeks used coal as fuel in the 4th century. However, the extensive mining process of coal started in Britain and that was in the 13th century. So why are we still using coal today? It is a very ancient method of producing energy. We have developed, we have technology. We can do it more efficiently, cleaner, and better. Hopefully, we collectively, as humanity, can push for cleaner and better ways to create energy. It is now time for the challenge for your next two weeks. Draw a card here. It says... Invest in a metal reusable straw. (laughs) I think many of us have those already at this point, but if you don't, now is your chance to get a metal reusable straw. It doesn't even have to be metal. Whatever kind of reusable straw. Personally, I don't really like straws. I do have reusable straws. I pretty much never use them because I'm not a straw person. But I actually did see something on Facebook today and I shared it to the Facebook group starting sustainability. And it was a picture of a beverage and it had a pasta noodle coming out of the top, like a penne, like a long penne pasta noodle, basically a pasta noodle with a hole. And it said, in Italy, they're using pasta as their reusable straws. I have no idea if that is true or not, but I found it absolutely hysterical. And I thought, you know what? If you're in a position where you need a straw and you forgot your reusable straw, because we've all forgotten our reusable items at some point, I forget the bags, I forget the produce bags, I forget my cutlery kit, I forget it all, all the time. But if you're in that position, maybe you can bust out a noodle or ask the restaurant for a noodle that you can use to drink up your beverage. (laughs) Next episode will be on June 13th. 
we're actually going to be on vacation to the Wisconsin Dells that week. So I have to tell you all about our trip the following episode, but next episode, June 13th, we are going to be talking all about the BIFL movement, which is the Buy It For Life movement. Much more positive than today's episode, I promise. Thanks for coming back this week and listening all about the environmental disasters from coal waste. I promise next time will be a much more cheery episode. I don't know what all of your plans are, Sustainer Nation, but if you're going out on vacation in June, have a wonderful vacation. Continue to live your life as sustainably as possible and learn and take steps of your journey every day. Continue to save the world. I will talk to you all next time. Have a great one. Bye.